All right, so in John chapter 7, we're going to read about a crowd of first century Jews who had to answer a very important question. And the question was this, was Jesus of Nazareth truly the Messiah? Messiah. Now the Hebrew word for Messiah is Mashiach, and we learn from a great website called Got Questions that in biblical times, um, anointing someone with oil was a sign that God was setting apart that person for a particular role. Okay, so that's what the actual word Messiah means, top line. It means the anointed one, the chosen one. In Greek, it's Christos, from which we get the English word Christ. So obviously, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus Messiah. And then two sentences from the bottom, thus the anointed one, right, the promised Messiah in the Old Testament was someone with a special God-ordained purpose. And so the Old Testament, which was written from around 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., From Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, to the last Old Testament prophet, Micah, we see that the Old Testament has a lot to say about the Messiah, and it clearly reveals that the Messiah's purpose is this. The Messiah would come to the earth to deliver, to save his people. And so after Malachi... Uh, the last Old Testament prophet, what you have in history is a 400-year, what's called intertestamental period between Malachi, Old Testament, and Matthew, New Testament. And so when you get to the first century AD, New Testament times, here's what you find out. You find out that the Jews were sick and tired of being under the iron fist of the ruling power of that day, and that was the Roman Empire. And so the Jews, when we come to the New Testament, man, they are longing for their promised Mashiach, uh, their their promised Messiah uh, to come, and they're praying, and they're waiting, and they're hoping. Uh, Here's what they wanted, wanted him to do. They wanted him to come and deliver, save them from their pagan occupiers. Now, here's what they didn't realize. What they didn't realize is that when the Messiah came, that he would not come to physically save them from Rome, but he would come to spiritually save them from their sins. That's what they didn't get. And so Jesus came, and Jesus offered salvation, listen to this, to anyone. Can you guys say the word anyone? Jesus offers salvation to anyone, Jew or Gentile, who will turn from their sins and repentance and uh, receive him as the Savior and Lord of their life, put their trust in him. And so what the New Testament reveals is that regarding the Messiah, right, this is not um, very clear and forthcoming in the Old Testament. There's hints about it. But what's very, very clear when you come to the New Testament is that there's two comings of the Messiah, you have the first coming, John 1, 11 through 12, right? He came unto his own, Israel, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, 
who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so when you turn to Christ in genuine repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of your life, you become a child of God. And guess what? The kingdom of God comes into your heart. Right? That's what the new covenant is all about. And so that's his first coming. And again, he offers salvation to anybody, Jews or Gentiles, who will come to him. But then thank God, there's also going to be in the future a second coming. How do you know? Well, again, you read it every Christmas on your Christmas card, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Listen to this. And the government, that's the world government, will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's in the Old Testament. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How many of you guys are looking forward to Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom on earth, right? I am so excited that someday, no one knows the day or the hour, but someday he's going to come back. And when he comes back, all the nonsense that we read about in the news will finally be done because Jesus Christ is going to reign. Now, as we come to John chapter 7, you need to know that we're about six months away from the crucifixion of the Christ. John 7 is all about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, which happens in September, October time frame. Okay, so everybody follow me here. October, November, December, January, February, March, April. That's the Feast of Passover, and that's when the Lamb of God would be crucified for the sins of the world. So right now, where we are in the Bible, we're six months from the crucifixion. And no doubt the cross is looming on the horizon in the mind and the heart of Jesus. Just keep that in mind as we go verse by verse in the next two weeks through chapter seven. So right now, if you're looking at John chapter seven, verse one, can you say amen so I know you're there? So after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Okay, if you're brand new to the Bible, you can turn later to the back of your Bible to the map. You'll see Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, Judea in the south. Jerusalem is in Judea. So after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because of the Jews. The Jews were seeking to do what to him? Kill him. Now the Jews in this verse is not speaking about the Jewish people in the first century. Please understand that. Please don't misinterpret that. Please never give in to the sin of anti-Semitism, okay? Because the Jews in the context here is talking about the religious leaders of Israel. There was tens of thousands of Jews who received Jesus as their Messiah in the first century, and there's still many Jews who receive him today. And so the Jews in this verse, the religious leaders of Israel, they lived in Judea. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Here's why. Very simple. We're in John chapter 7. If you hit the rewind button and you go back a year and a half, you come to John chapter 5. And what did Jesus do in John chapter 5? Jesus healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. You remember that guy was laying there on his sleeping roll, his mat, 
He hadn't walked for 38 years. Jesus walks up to him and he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And that's exactly what he did. He got up, he took up his bed, his sleep roll, and he walked and no doubt he jumped for joy as well. He was happy, why? Because Jesus performed a miracle in his life and that should make you happy. But if you're a legalist, you're not happy if you're a legalist, what you like to do, you know, the legalist is a person who lives by man-made religious rules and tries to impose those man-made religious rules on others. If you're a legalist, then what you do in situations like that is you cross your arms and you like to find fault, you like to criticize, you like to nitpick what just happened. And that's what the religious leaders did back in chapter five. Ladies and gentlemen, can I just hit the pause button? None of this is in the notes, but can I just implore you that we not allow ourselves at Calvary PSL to ever become a legalistic church. Let's not do that. Let's never do that. There are enough rules from God in the Bible. We don't need to have a bunch of additional man-made rules that we try to live by or impose on other people. We don't need to do that. I'm talking about within the the culture of the church. I'm not talking about obeying the government, that's a different subject, Romans 13, yes, obey the government. I'm talking about within the church. We don't need all these man-made rules, legalistic rules. I was telling Pastor Reagan, our worship leader, last Tuesday at staff meeting, that it gives my heart so much joy when I'm worshiping um, and, and looking up and seeing all these different people um, up here on the platform and they are just being who they are. They're dressing the way they want to, why? Because that's the way they like to dress. They're just being who they are. And it's a wonderful thing, why? Because ladies and gentlemen, we have freedom in Christ to just be who God made us to be. That's why. A long time ago, I led a guy to Christ and I brought him to church. Now this is years ago and the church that I was going to um, here's the thing, um, I got him to come to church and he came for two or three times and then he disappeared. And I went to his house and I knocked on his door and I said, hey man, where you been? We missed you at church. He's like, Mike, I can't do it. I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, I can't go to your church, why? He said, because all you guys look the same. <laughs> you all wear the suits and the ties and you all got short hair and it's just not me, I can't do it. Now let me ask you something, is there anything wrong with wearing a suit and tie to church? No, not at all. If that's what you wanna do, if that's you, great. But don't look down your nose on somebody who wants to wear a t-shirt and jeans to church either. Let's let them be who they are. Let them be who they are. And if you wear jeans and t-shirt, don't you know, poke fun at the guy who's got a tie on. Now I'm talking to the guys. Notice I'm not talking about what women wear. I would never do that. I know better. Yeah, I am smart. But ladies, I will ask you to please, and this is biblical, this is in the New Testament, please be modest in your, in your dress. Okay, so the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they're nitpicking, they're criticizing, why? Because Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath day. And Jesus told him to carry his bed on the Sabbath day, and what did that do? That violated the religious leader's interpretation of the fourth commandment, which is that you shouldn't work on 
Saturday, the Sabbath, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. By the way, quick side note, again, not in the notes, but under the New Testament, the New Covenant, we are not under the law of the Sabbath. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Please get this. Go to God Questions and read all the articles. But listen, you don't have to stop working from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. The Sabbath was given to Israel, and under the new covenant, Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. Okay, so here's the thing, though. They didn't like what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. And here's what Jesus said to to them, and I quote, My father is working until now and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. And that made their blood boil. Why? It angered them because his reply put them on the same level as God. And in the very next verse, John wrote this. This is why the Jews, religious leaders, were seeking all the more to do what? Kill him. Can you imagine? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, by the way, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath, he was breaking their interpretation of the Sabbath. But not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, praise the Lord. He was and is equal to God. There is one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's what you need to know. For 18 months, from chapter five to chapter seven, from the healing of the man at Pool Bethesda to where we are now, for 18 months, the anger, the rage, has been growing in intensity in these religious leaders. And as we come to chapter seven, it is about to boil over. Now, you also need to know these religious leaders lived in Judea, and they're waiting for their chance to arrest Jesus. So again, back to verse one. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee in the north. He would not go about in Judea in the south because the religious leaders were seeking to kill him. Verse two. Now the Jews feast of booths. By the way, Jews here is speaking about the whole nation of Israel. Now the Jews feast of booths was at hand. How many of you guys, your version says Feast of Tabernacles, right? Same thing. And so what we have here is the Feast of Booths, and it's one of the three primary festivals in Israel. And so according to Deuteronomy 16, 16, God told the Israelites to assemble before him three times a year in the place that he would choose. Guess what he said in Deuteronomy 16, 16, as you continue to read the Old Testament, and I hope you are, you find out that later, God chose Jerusalem as the place that they would build the temple for him and he would put his name. So three times a year, the Israelites were to come to Jerusalem, okay? And what were the three times of year? Passover. That's March or April time frame. And then you have the Feast of Pentecost. That's May, June time frame. And then where we are in the Bible, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, that's September or October time frame. And so if you're new to all this, what is the Feast of Booths? Well, it's a celebration when Jewish families made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one week, seven days, 
to commemorate God's care for their ancestors after their exodus from Egypt. So we're going all the way back to Exodus, back to the time of Moses. Now here in John 7, I want you to imagine this, picture it in your mind. You have literally hundreds of thousands of Jews and they're coming from all over the Roman Empire. Um, the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews all around the Mediterranean Sea. So imagine Italy, current day Italy. Imagine um, Greece. Imagine modern day Turkey and Syria, right? And imagine Northern Africa. And all these Jews, Jewish families are coming and converging on Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. When they get there, what do they do? They make, I love this, they make these temporary makeshift shelters out of leafy trees. And they camp out under the stars for a week. Mom, dad, kids, they're all camping out. And so if a Jewish person lived in the city of Jerusalem, then he simply built his booth, his temporary shelter made out of leafy branches on the top of his flat roof or maybe down in his courtyard. And so picture it right now, those of you who have been with, to us, uh, with us to Jerusalem, you could probably see it better than most, but imagine there you have the city of Jerusalem, you have the gates of Jerusalem, you have all these temporary shelters all around the inside of the city, but then outside of the city, thousands and thousands down the Kidron Valley up into the Mount of Olives, here they all are. And what are they doing? They are, last two lines, commemorating God's care for their ancient ancestors, which happened 1,500 years before where we are in John 7, their ancient ancestors after their exodus from Egypt in the days of Moses. And so as they uh, camped outside around the fire, I love this, the parents were there and they were teaching their children now, I want you to hear that right there, mom and dad, because here's what you need to know. It's not Pastor Ethan's job, primarily, to teach God's word and God's principles to your kids, mom and dad. That's primarily your job to do that. And it's not um, the faculty and staff of Calvary Christian Academy across the street. It's not their primary primary job to teach the word of God and God's principles to your kids, mom and dad. We certainly do that. We give them an excellent education within a biblical worldview in a Christ-centered environment, but mom and dad, it's primarily your responsibility to teach God's principles and God's word to your kids. And this is what the Jews are doing. The, can you picture it? They're there, maybe around the campfire, and it's the Feast of Booths, and maybe you know, they're out at night underneath a beautiful, clear, starry night. And what are they doing? They're teaching their children. Our God is so good. You know what happened? Way back in the time of Moses, God led our people out of slavery through the Red Sea and um, on their way to the promised land. And as they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, man, God took care of them. He led them with a pillar of fire at night and he led them with a pillar of cloud by day. And kids, guess what? Every single morning, every day, they had manna on the ground to eat. Isn't God good? Isn't God wonderful? And it was a great object lesson for the, the kids because they're out there for seven days 
and they're learning about the Bible. Now, back to our text, here in chapter seven, the Jews in Galilee, they are now preparing to go down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And how would they travel? They would travel in caravans. So a bunch of families would get together because there's safety in numbers, and they would all travel in caravans down to Jerusalem for these three Jewish festivals. And as everybody's packing their bags up in Galilee, Jesus' brothers notice that he's not packing his bags. What's up with Jesus? Let's find out now in verse three. So his brothers said to him, leave here. In other words, leave Galilee and go to Judea for the Feast of Booths. That your disciples, your followers down in Judea, also may see the works you're doing, the miracles that you've been doing up in here in Galilee. Verse four, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, if he wants to be famous. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, regarding Jesus' siblings, you need to know that Mark 6, 3 and can everybody, everybody just say Mark 6, 3, please? Mark 6, 3 tells us very clearly that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. Now, this, of course, would be his four little half-brothers, and their names, James, by the way, his brothers, thank God, get saved later on after the resurrection, and James goes and writes the epistle of James in the back of your New Testament. Joseph, Simon, and Jude, Jude writes that little fiery epistle that we went through a couple years ago in the, in the end of your New Testament. And so that's the names of his four little half-brothers, and we know he has at least two sisters because sisters is plural in that verse. Now I say half-brothers and sisters because here's what you, you gotta hear this right here, right now. After the Virgin Mary conceived the Christ child by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, you say, you really believe in the virgin birth? You bet your bottom dollar. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an essential of the Christian faith, the virgin birth. Very, very important. If you're ever in, the, in a church and they deny the virgin birth, you know the one word, go ahead and say it, run. <laughs> the virgin birth is in the Bible, it's absolutely true. And so after the Virgin Mary conceived the Christ child by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, here's where it gets a little controversial. Mary, this is what I believe. Mary and Joseph consummated their marriage and had four boys and at least two girls. Now, the doctrine in, in the Roman church of the perpetual virginity of Mary did you know it's nowhere in the New Testament? It was added later. And so, by the way, while I'm on the subject, um, the assumption of Mary, the word assumption comes from a Latin word meaning taken up. And so the Roman church, Roman Catholic church, actually teaches that when Mary died, 
she resurrected and was glorified and she was bodily taken up to heaven. Did you know that's nowhere in the New Testament? It's just not there. The Roman Catholic Church also teaches in what's called the Immaculate Conception. Now we believe in that Jesus was immaculately conceived. We, again, the virgin birth, absolutely, 1,000%, yes. But the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was conceived without a sin nature. That's nowhere in the New Testament. And so ladies and gentlemen, listen, we believe that this is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. This right here. And when you have later in history, popes and church councils that make decrees and put them on the same level of the word of God, we say no. This is why we're called Protestants. We protest that. It's, it's super clear. And so let's just stick what the Bible says. And what does the Bible say? Well, Mary called God her savior. What does that mean? That she was a sinner and she needed a savior. But here's what you need to know. She was godly. She's to be honored above women. She was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. We absolutely honor her. We don't pray to her. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, so you don't pray to her. And maybe right now you're thinking, Pastor, why do you have to be so divisive? Listen, truth is divisive. And I've got to speak the truth to you. We honor Mary. We do. But we've got to just stick with the Bible. All right. So um, back to the text. Jesus' brothers, they're getting ready to catch the caravan that goes from Galilee down to Judea. Right? And they're wanting Jesus to come with them. They want to give him some brotherly advice. And basically, his little brothers are saying, hey, Jesus. You know, if you want to be famous, you need to expand your ministry. If you want the world to believe you're the Messiah, then don't just stay up here in Galilee. Get over to the big city. Get to Jerusalem. But there was a problem with their advice. It was ungodly, worldly advice from unbelievers. You say, where do you get that from? The very next verse. Verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. And that leads you to your next point. Jesus' own brothers rejected him. It's like, ouch, that hurts. Can you imagine somebody that you love as much as a brother? And the brother gives you a cold shoulder, the brother mocks you, scorns you, speaks about you behind your back contemptuously, ouch. But here's what I know, a lot of you have brothers or sisters or aunts or uncles or moms and dads or friends or loved ones who treat you the same way. And so the rest of the point there is, guess what? Jesus can relate to your pain. He's been there, done that, and God has the t-shirt. He knows what you're going through. And so here's my encouragement to you. My encouragement to you is to remember this. Never forget this. Jesus loves you and he he will never leave you or forsake you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And my encouragement to you is develop a close relationship with him. 
And here's, here, here's why, because as you develop a close relationship with him and you're in those beautiful times where you're sensing his presence, listen, God's presence will sustain you while other people are rejecting you. God's presence will sustain you while other people are giving you the cold shoulder or talking about you behind your back or talking nasty about you on social media. God's presence, listen, Jesus' love is better than any love, anytime, anywhere. It's Jesus' love. And we live before an audience of one. And, and I, listen, I'm preaching to myself right now, just so you know. Please don't ever think that I'm up here self-righteously trying to tell everybody how to live their life. Listen, I'm right down there with you. I'm a sinner in need of a savior, okay? But here's what we all have to remember. We live before an audience of one, and we cannot allow ourselves to be bound with the chains of how other people think about us. We gotta get over that. I gotta get over that as well. At the, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what other people think about you. What matters is what God thinks about you. And so, Jesus knows your pain though. And you would think that the Lord's own brothers would have believed in him, right? They grew up in the same house as Jesus did. They knew Jesus so well. And by the way, they knew that big brother can do miracles. And so, what's the problem here? Why don't they believe in him? Here's... Here's what I think. I think they're blinded by their jealousy. I mean, the Bible teaches very clearly Jesus never sinned, okay? So that means that he's so gracious, he's so kind, he's so thoughtful, he's so loving, he's so caring, he always does what's right. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have a sibling like that? <laughs> Maybe not. It's kind of hard to be compared to perfection, right? I mean, you're always getting into trouble, but big brother, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, he never gets in trouble. And so now everybody's an adult, and so now it's like, oh, here comes the big shot. Messiah wants to rule over Israel. That's what's going on in our Bibles. And so they're speaking contemptuously. They're scorning him in these verses that we're, that we're reading and that we're studying this morning. And so their idea here is, why are you hanging up here in the sticks? Go up to the big city in Jerusalem. Make a name for yourself. And here's what you need to know. As they're talking, <laughs> I like this. As they're talking, trying to give him brotherly advice, did you know what it sounded like to Jesus? How many of you guys are old enough to remember um, Charlie Brown and when he was in school? And you remember the teacher? Wah, 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 wah. That's what his brothers sound like to him. Why? Because he's not gonna listen to the advice of the ungodly. Check out what David said back in the Psalms. Yeah, thank you. Uh, first, your point. Be careful who you get your counsel from. Don't listen to the ungodly. If anybody ever tells you to go against scripture, run. Listen to me. If any, somebody ever gives you the counsel, leave your spouse. Can I encourage you about something? And this is a whole other sermon, and I know there's a lot more to it than I have time to talk about right now. But yes, adultery and the abandonment of an unbeliever, those are biblical grounds for divorce. I'm not saying if your spouse commits adultery, you have to divorce them, but there's a, those are biblical grounds for divorce. But outside of those two things, 
I say three things, adultery, abandonment, and abuse. God hasn't caused, called any person to be a punching bag, please. Okay, but listen, outside of that, if someone tells you to leave your spouse, don't listen to them. Ladies, if someone tells you that you should go get an abortion, please, I implore you, don't listen to them. Go down to CareNet, our the crisis pregnancy center we have here on the Treasure Coast, and talk to them, get counsel from them, get an ultrasound. Here's what you'll find out, that it's not just your body and your right. There's two bodies in there. There's two bodies in there. And that is a baby. I think it's caseforlife.com, by the way. Dr. Frank Turek will probably talk about it. But um, man, as Christians, we gotta be ready now to be able to, to prove and make our case for life. But, but listen, if someone tells you to, to have sex outside of marriage, no, don't. God, who created sex, and as I always say, he's a great creator, right? But God, who created sex, made it for the marriage covenant alone, not outside of it. And so, listen, just do what God says. You say, why? Well, the same reason if your toddler's gonna go up and put his hand on the burning stove, that's why, you're gonna get burned. Just do it God's way. God's your father. I hope he's your father through faith in Jesus Christ. God loves you. He wants the best for your life. How many of you guys know that Christ didn't come just to give us eternal life, but abundant life? And so if we follow his way, we'll have that abundant life. And so now I'll show you what David said. Um, so check out what David wrote. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. If you see that, say amen here. Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And so this is where we're supposed to get our counsel from. And counsel should be based on the word of God. But have you ever heard the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? You've heard that, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, here's what I have found out sometimes happens. And that is that somebody will say, God loves you and everybody else has a wonderful plan for your life. Why? Because everybody wants to tell you what they think. I remember in my younger years, in a very pivotal time in my life, there were certain people in my life and they were trying to give me advice, trying to steer me in a different direction than what the Lord had for me. It's kind of like if I'm in a car and I'm driving, it's kind of like they're sitting over here and they're trying to take the wheel and turn down a road that God doesn't want me to go down. I remember, young people, I'm talking mostly to you right now, but I'm actually talking, pardon the bad English, to all y'all and those of you who are watching too. But, but listen, I had that happen to me several times in my younger years. And I am so glad by God's grace that he enabled me not to listen to them, that God took the wheel and he helped me stay on track, not perfect at all, ever, not even close, but God has helped me over the years to follow his plan for my life. And a result of his grace, I've been blessed. I mean, check this out. This is what I'm experiencing now. This is amazing. 
And so you have my beautiful wife, Stacy, who's beautiful on the inside and the out. We've been married for 33 years. Thank God in my teenage years, I met her. And the, praise the Lord, we have three daughters. God gave us three daughters, Megan, Mandy, and Mary. And so Megan and our son-in-law, Ethan, they have in the top middle, Serafina, and then to Serafina's right, Logan. And then they have Benaya, and then Stacy's holding their newest child, Shiloh. And then we have our middle daughter, Mandy, and with our son-in-law, Desio, um, they have a beautiful family as well. They have little Beatrice. I'm holding Beatrice. Isn't she amazing, by the way? And then you have um, our youngest daughter, Mary. She's married to our son-in-law, uh, Angel. And they have Addie and Micah. They're on the right-hand side. They're holding hands. Now, you know what I call that? The first thing I call that is grace. But I also want to say that by God's grace, because God helped me, God grabbed the wheel and helped me stay, I'm 55 years old now, but helped me stay on the path, um, his path, then this is what we get to experience now in our later years. And so here's what I wanna, here's my point in bringing this up. If I would have listened to those certain people in my younger years and gone down a road that the Lord didn't have for me, that would not have happened. That picture would never, so to speak, developed. You know what I'm saying? And so here's what I'm saying to you guys. Stay on the road God has for you. It's not your job to listen to everybody else's opinion for your life. It's your job to find out what God wants you to do in your life and do what he says. It's your job to meditate in his word day and night and to follow what it says in the word of God. It's your job to, to follow the clear inner leading of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And then as you do that, what happens? Abundant life happens. Now you might say, I blew it. And I'm not experiencing anything you know, like that right now. Well, hey, I got good news for you. Our God is a God of forgiveness and redemption and tomorrow is the first day of the rest of your life and he can restore the years the locusts has, 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 have eaten and he can bless you and give you abundant life for the rest of your life. But you gotta choose. You gotta choose. Young people, listen to me. You gotta choose to follow his plan. And let everybody else's counsel just be wah, 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 wah. Verse six. You say, we're getting through 31 verses today? I'm just gonna read and comment here in a minute. But Jesus said to them, his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here, brothers. So it's not my time to go to the feast right now, but you guys do whatever you want whenever you wanna do it. Your time's always here. The world, everybody say the word world, cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Okay, so what did Jesus mean by the word world? Well, Blue Letter Bible, praise God, another great website. Um, it's not talking about the earth and the trees and the flowers, no. In the context, it's the ungodly multitude the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. By the way, since Roe v. Wade got overturned, have you seen the hostility? I mean, people are furious. And so, listen, 
the world, whether it's that topic or a thousand other topics, they just wanna go their own way, do their own thing, ignore God, ignore his word. They just want to do what they want to do. The ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men and women alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. That's the world. And so the Lord told his brothers in verse seven, I like this, I really want you guys to see this. He says in verse seven, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why does the world hate Jesus? Here it is. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. I want you to see that phrase. Do you guys remember these bracelets back in the day, 30 years ago in 1990? What would Jesus do? Be honest, how many of you guys had those bracelets? You wore them around. Yeah. Okay, what did it remind us of? It reminded us every day of, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? I gotta imitate Christ. Okay, so what would Jesus do if he was on the earth today? You tell me, would he love the world, yes or no? Would he love the world, oh boy. Would he love the world, yes or no? Yes. Yes. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Pastor Will preached it last week. While we were, uh, God showed his love toward, love toward us and that while we were yes sinners, Christ died for us. He would love the world. But let me ask you this, you can answer out loud too. Would he call out the sin of the world? Yes. On the authority of verse seven, he said that he testifies that the works of the world are evil. So what would Jesus do? He would love the world, but he would also never back down from calling sin, sin. What should we do? The same thing. But the problem is, there's some Christians, and they look at the sin of the world, and they think, well, what do you expect? They're not saved. Of course they're gonna act like that. And they never say anything about the evils in the world. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a problem. You see, in some churches, they emphasize the love of God. And that's great. You cannot emphasize the love of God enough. And I thank God we do that here. But in those same churches, some other churches, here's what they don't do. They don't ever talk about God's hatred for sin and the consequences of sin. And I'm here to tell you that you gotta preach both. God's love, but also God's hatred for sin and the consequences of sin. Here's what we need to be reminded of, that listen, the lost people can't get saved until they see their sin. In other words, lost people have to see their need for a savior before they can get saved. They gotta come to the place, I hope I'm making sense here, but they they gotta come to the place where they realize, Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. They gotta get to the place where they realize, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They gotta get to the place where they realize, Romans 6.23, first half of the verse, that the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God, conscious living in hell. That's what the, Jesus taught that. And Paul wrote about it later. And so they gotta get to that place where they realize their sin and their need for a savior. It's called conviction. 
Warren Wearsby put it this way, there can be no conversion without conviction. I'm not talking about yelling at people, I'm not talking about uh, shaming people, I'm not talking about being hateful towards people at all, but here's what I'm saying, if you're listening, say amen here. As a church and as a people, we can't become soft on sin. We can't become like our culture who calls good evil and evil good. We have to be like Jesus who calls good good and evil evil. There's got to be a distinction. And as we do that, as we walk in that way, as we emphasize both God's love and his hatred for sin, then what we find is the Holy Spirit uses us to bring conviction into people's lives and hopefully that's gonna lead to them seeing their need for a savior and their conversion to Christ. Am I making sense? Okay, 10 people say I'm making sense. I hope you guys are getting this. There's no conversion without conviction over sin. But Jesus told his brothers in the first part of verse seven, he said, you, um, he says, the world cannot hate you. The world can't hate you guys. Now why? Why couldn't the world hate Jesus' little half-brothers? Here's why. Because they fit into its mold. They followed its way of life. That leads you to your next point, and it's not original with me. I don't know who said this first. It's great. Any dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a fish that's alive to swim upstream. Okay, so here's the truth, whether we like it or not. The current of the world is flowing down to hell. And in Jesus' day, his little half-brothers were on that current. They were spiritually dead. And because they're going in the same direction as everybody else in the culture, they're not bumping into anybody, they're not causing any problems, they're not stirring up any trouble, and that's why the world loved Jesus' little brothers. But Jesus was just the opposite. He called out the works of the world as evil, and that's why he caused problems in the religious establishment of his day. Christ was alive, and he's swimming upstream, and what is he doing? He's bumping into all these dead fish. Who are the dead fish? The religious leaders who are spiritually dead. Did you know you can be religious and spiritually dead? And Jesus is bumping, bumping, bumping into them, exposing their sin, and they want to kill him for that. And here's the question I have for you, and I want you to answer this honestly in your heart. Does the world hate you? That's what you gotta ask ask yourself. Does the world hate you? And if not, you need to ask yourself why. And I hope it's not because you're going in the same direction as they are, adopting their worldview and embracing their sin. One of my heroes in the faith is William Wilberforce. I thank God for this guy. Why? Because here's what he did. He almost single-handedly through his Um, influence on parliament. This guy was a born-again evangelical Christian and almost single-handedly through his influence on uh, parliament, he abolished the slave trade within Great Britain. You think he went public with his faith? Absolutely. You think he called out the sin of the world? Absolutely. 
And he said, enough's enough. It's not right that white people are taking ships to West Africa and man-stealing and chaining them and putting them in a bottom of a boat and sending them to another country so they can be slaves. That's wrong, and we gotta stop it. And he stood up in Parliament publicly. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Our faith is not something that's supposed to be private. We're supposed to go public with our faith. It's supposed to be in our hearts and our lips and our lives, and it's supposed to affect change. And people will hate us for it, or they'll get convicted and they'll turn to Christ. And so the choice is ours. And so now what I'll do for the last five minutes (laughs) is read and comment, and we'll wrap it up. But if you're committed to stay with me to the end, can you just say amen here? All right, so verse eight. He says to his brothers, you guys go ahead and go on up to the feast. I'm not going up, and I like the new King James Version here that inserts yet, or has yet, because that's what he was saying. I'm not going up yet to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But, verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Okay, so what's going on here is that Jesus is being led by the Father. The Father's not leading him to go up yet with his brothers publicly to Jerusalem, but he did lead him a little later to go privately. Some people have audaciously said Jesus lied here. What a joke. Verse 11, The Jews, religious leaders, were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? (laughs) They want to kill him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Now, while some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And so the same polarization over Jesus Christ exists today. Some people say he's a good man. Some people say he's a deceiver. What do you say about Jesus? Verse 14, he goes public. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple. He began teaching. The Jews, the religious leaders, therefore marveled. And they're like, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied. This guy has never sat at the feet of any of our approved rabbis. This guy has never gone to any of our rabbinical schools. Where is his credentials? You know, this is an outrage. That's what's happening here. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. Oh, their anger's boiling over now. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And you guys know as well as I do, the religious leaders had no desire to do, actually do God's will. And so they didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. Verse 18, Jesus said, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Be careful of religious leaders that are seeking their own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. And so because Jesus is always pointing to the Father, this was one of the ways people in his day could tell that he was true and not false. He was seeking glory for the Father. Verse 19, he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek 
to kill me. And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Well, everybody, the religious leaders in the crowd, what do they want to do? Kill Jesus. And that would have violated the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. So Jesus had every right to call them lawbreakers. Verse 21, Jesus, and this is where he stumps them, and this is one of my favorite parts. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work, right? Healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda a year and a half ago. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And you circumcise a man, a male child, on the Sabbath. Verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Everybody look at me real quick. This is so cool. He tells the religious leaders, he goes, hey, you guys still follow um, Leviticus chapter 12, verse three, right? That on the eighth day, you circumcise your little boys? You guys do that, right? Okay, so think with me here. What happens when that eighth day falls on the Sabbath? Do you guys still perform the surgery, yes or no? And they're like, yeah. Okay, so if you're allowed to do a good work and circumcise your baby boys on the Sabbath, why can't I do a good work and heal a guy's whole body at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day? And did you notice there's no answer? You know why? Everybody look at me, here's why. Because they were all like this. They couldn't believe it. You can't argued with Jesus. And so, verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? Can it be that the authorities really know that this isn't the Christ? But wait a minute, verse 27, we know where this man comes from. He's from up in Galilee. And when the Christ appears, no one's gonna know where he comes from. They, by the way, they get that from Malachi 3.1, which prophesies that when the Lord um, appears in the temple, it'll be suddenly. And so they take that verse and they say, he's gonna suddenly appear virtually out of nowhere and redeem Israel. And so that's why they had a problem with knowing where Jesus was from. And then verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, well, you know me, and you know where I come from. You know, I live up in Capernaum on the top of the Sea of Galilee in Galilee. But here's the backstory. I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, the Father. And him you do not know. And by the way, that's what scares me about some people in our church. They don't know the Father. They're religious, but there's no personal relationship. Verse 29, Jesus said, I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. So Jesus knew exactly who he was, the Messiah. He knew where he was from. He was from the Father in heaven. Last two verses. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people, praise God, believed in him.
him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs, miracles than this man has done? And so many people in the crowd that day saw Jesus' miracles, they saw all the lives that were changed, and they said, this has to be the Messiah. And many of them put their faith in Jesus. That leads you to your last point, and that is that Jesus is still changing lives today, and he can change your life. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But here's what you gotta do. You gotta turn to him in genuine repentance and faith.